Hey, this is Rob Orman. I am a physician coach and host of the Stimulus Podcast, what you're about to hear. This show focuses on stories, strategies, tactics, or sometimes just information that I think will help you thrive in your career and life. If you want to dive deeper, if you are feeling burnt out, overwhelmed, or have any kind of challenge in your career that you're finding it hard to navigate, one-on-one coaching might be just what you're looking for. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician, and now as a full-time physician coach, my job is to help you get where you want to be. You can learn more at my website, roborman.com. Hello, 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 my friends, and welcome back to the show. First one of 2023. How exciting. You know, I'm listening to that intro, and it makes me think. I've gotten several inquiries recently from non-physicians reaching out about coaching, some nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and folks not even involved in medicine. And the first question always is, would you work with a non-physician? I mean, it's called Orman Physician Coaching. And the answer is yes, I would. And I do. I have several non-physician clients. So if you've been thinking about coaching and seen that as a barrier, well, know that it's not. All right, here we go. Episode 94. Good giggly wiggly. Can you believe it? 94 of these things. Before I introduce our guest, we have gotten several emails on our last episode, which was five sleep tools that we've tested and like. And one of them is a recommendation for you, for listeners. It's from Dr. George Willis, Dr. Iron Grip Willis, just the ubermensch for those of you guys who have met him. Oh, what a guy. And one of the things we talked about in that episode was the Uller pad, pretty pricey. And it's over a thousand bucks for the king, the one that we got. That's the pad that can cool or heat your mattress. And George says, my wife and I swear by our bed jet, one word, bed jet, It's kind of like an air conditioner heater for your bed and blows hot or cold air under your comforter. It's controlled by your phone, but also comes with a remote so you can leave your phone in the bedroom. George goes on to say that we would be divorced without it. Wow, what talk about an endorsement. Because I sleep better in colder temps and she likes warm. And he adds, so we also talked about the Bucky 40 Winks sleep mask that my wife and I both use. And George says... I use the Manta mask. It has some cups that surround your eyes as well. It's a little more expensive than the one you recommend, about $35, but super comfy and lasts a little longer. He says, I've had mine for about five years and it still fits great. Oh, it is definitely longer because ours lasts for less than a year. So there you go. A couple recommendations from Iron Grip himself and Lon Setnik. Yes, the Lon Setnik from several episodes, including most recently, How to Give Feedback had this to say regarding the Flint's Quiet Please earplugs that I have found to be my favorite after decades of testing and went on a little side note when talking about them, about how our dog Loki loves to eat them. He loves to eat and he just goes hunting for them. Chews them like gum. Lon has this to say, my dog eats earplugs also. WTF. That's the whole email. All right, onward. Our guest today, Vitaly Katzelnelson. He is a somewhat different guest than we usually have on the show. Very stoked to have him. He's got nothing to do with medicine. He's got more to do with mindset and approach to finance, etc. So who is this guy? Vitaly was born in the Soviet Union, immigrated to the United States with his family in 1991. He got involved in finance, as you'll hear about in the show, 
and after many years became CEO of the Denver-based Investment Management Associates. He's a widely published writer, writes for Financial Times, Barron's Institutional Investor, Foreign Policy. He's written several books on investing. And why he's on our show today is because he recently published a book titled Soul in the Game. And this book is a series of essays, his takes on life, finance, philosophy, family. And you know what? I like the book. So I asked him on the show. That's how we've had all the authors on the show is we like the book. And so come on, let's chat. Simple as that. And in this episode, we get into the best personal finance that Vitaly ever received, why we argue about money, the value of a scarcity mindset. We talk about habits, books, geofencing a diet. Yeah, that came out of left field, geofencing a diet. And we start the podcast picking it up mid-conversation when Vitaly and I, we'd been talking a while and I just kind of hit record. We'd been talking about what his life was like growing up in the Soviet Union where scarcity, I means the scarcity was how it was, you know, empty shelves. And now he lives in the U.S. where his kids are growing up with access to plenty. Your kids born in, yes. in the United yeah. States. And, yeah. and so they didn't grow up with kind of a scarcity mindset. Yeah. Do, I mean, do they ever look and say, in the, even just in the, in, the, in the run of life, like, Dad, what, what, what are you, where are you even coming from on this? I'm not sure they questioned me on that. Yeah. But I think I kind of tried to instill the scarcity mindset into them. And let me give you, let me just give you this example. And I talk about this in the book. When I was growing up in Russia, I had Pepsi only once in my life. And I remember the first time I had Pepsi, that was like this, this magic moment. This was, I, it, was the mo- it was hot outside and I had this cold drink and it was just absolutely magical. And I remember how much I loved it. But that was it. There was no, like, it was very difficult to find Pepsi or Coke in Russia. So that was my only experience having Pepsi and Coke. And then I come to United States and I realized that I can actually buy Coke or Pepsi by, by gallons. And it's actually much cheaper than water. Or, or, or as cheap as water almost. And so over the next three years of my life in the United States, I made up for the lack of consumption of my previous 18 years in Russia. <laughs> but then I remember, I, like maybe three, four years later, I'm, I remember this moment vividly. I'm sitting in a village in restaurant and I'm ordering my third refill of Coke. <laughs> And I'm drinking it, and I realize I don't actually, I can't sense it. I can't yeah. sense the sweetness of it anymore because I've been drinking it so much. I became desensitized. And I realized that I'm consuming a lot of sugar and I'm not even enjoying it. So at that point, I kind of created artificial scarcity for myself. And I do this, by the way, all the time. So now I only drink Coke when I go, when I go see a movie. So in Russia, there was a there was this scarcity. And because of the scarcity, because you go to the stores, a lot of times you see empty shelves. And that scarcity made you appreciate things, just what, what we take in America for granted. And in America, we have this abundance of things. And therefore, a lot of times, the, because we have everything and we can get as much food as we want, et cetera, we don't appreciate normal things like having Coke. So... I artificially infuse some amount of kind of healthy amount of care scarcity into my life. So it's not that I don't feed my kids for three days and then they give them food. That's, I don't do that. But I just, you know, I'll give you one example. This is a very simple example. I drive my kids to school 
And in the beginning, we would stop by and get donuts once a week, a few times a week. And then they kind of stopped appreciating it. Today, we only get donuts once a month. And they know that. So, but that time when we get donuts that month, they love it. For them, that's a special experience. So we do those kind of things. You're really well known in financial circles. You've written a bunch of books on mm-hmm. finance. You're the CEO of a, I guess you would say a wealth management mm-hmm. company. And, and then you write this book, Soul in the Game, totally different from anything that at least that I've seen looking through your stuff, anything that you've done before. Why did you write this book? It's not that you needed anything no. more. I'll give you two answers. First one, I'm going to quote Freddie Mercury. And he has this song that I, that he sang with Michael Jackson. And the title of this song is, There Must Be More to Life Than This. And this, for me, being just writing about investing. And I wrote this book, not for financial reasons, but I wrote this book because I wanted somebody to read this book and this book have a positive impact on this person. There's 75 chapters in this book, and I don't expect that every single chapter will resonate with the reader. But if a person reads this book and one or two chapters improve their life or change the person's behavior for the better, I, I, I achieve my goal. And also, there is another reason too. The in the preface of the book, I say, I dedicate the book to my kids. And it says, Jonah, Hannah, and Mia, Sarah, because he don't read my emails. <laughs> and and that is, and, and there is a lot of truth in this because I wanted kind of download all my wisdom as little as I have and put it into one place for my kids to have. So, and, and by the way, my kids, my older kids, I read the book and I think it had an impact on them. A couple of things I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Probably of all the chapters in the book, this one got my attention the most. And it's, I, th- I think the title of the chapter is Personal Finance Advice That Changed My Life. And I see that and think, wait a second, like, this guy's a CEO of <laughs> like this wealth management company. And now he's talking about the personal finance that changed his life. So, okay, you had me at hello. And, and I love the story of how this play yeah. you kind of you, you come to you come to the story with like some hubris and just walk us through kind of yeah. what happened what the advice was well so it's, I, I have to i have to kind of provide this context so i, I got married in 2000 at this point i already have a undergraduate degree in finance master's degree in finance and i and i'm a, I'm a cfa chartered financial analyst so i like you could you could argue that I know something about finance, and I I work as an analyst at this point in time. So and then this my my friend Mark was ten years older than me, so I was at the time twenty eight and he was thirty eight. He takes me out to lunch, so I just get married, and he takes me and my my wife out to lunch. And he said, "Guys, this is what I learned over the years. You may have arguments about things, but you won't have to argue about finances." I'm like great, and he basically says, "Well." You have to create a budget. And he says, okay, so I'm like, okay, listen, I, I got the master's degree in finance. He's like, just listen to me. And, and he says, well, first of all, you identify your income. I said, again, I got a master's degree in finance. He's like, just listen. To me. Okay. <laughs> and he's like, I identify your expenses, you know, your cable bill, your mortgage, those things. But he said, don't just stop at the expenses you see. S- start thinking about expenses that you don't see, but happen all the time or will happen in the future. For instance, every so many years, you need to buy a new car. 
and you need twenty thousand dollars. So instead of you borrowing money in five years and be surprised that you need to buy a new car, create a sinking fund for that. Start putting a few hundred dollars a month away for it. So when the time comes for you to buy a car, you save the money for it. And then you're going to have also, you're going to need to buy furniture in the future. You're going to have car accidents. So you're going to have emergencies. Make sure that you recognize those expenses as well and you put money away for them today. And what's going to happen is that after you take care of your immediate needs and your future expenses, the money you have left is the discretion spending. Also, think about this. Some of the expenses happen, they just don't happen this month, but they happen every month, every year. We go on vacations, right? So that's the money you need to save. So that was first part of the message. But the second part of the message was this. You want to be mindful about your spending. What does it mean being mindful about your spending? Well, this is what it means. A lot of times we spend money mindlessly. We spend money because we spend money. We go to Starbucks. Let's say you move to a new city and you're going to work for the first time and you're driving to work and you stop by Starbucks. And then maybe tomorrow, next day, you do it again. You just created a habit that may cost you $1,500 a year. Now, if you are mindful about this, you say, when I budget, I'm going to prioritize what's more, what's more important to me, what's less important to me. I really enjoy that 15 minutes a day when I go to Starbucks and I spend this money. So I'm going to put it at the top of my spending list. But you know, the, the money is scarce. So if I spend $1,500 on Starbucks, that means I'm going to have $1,500 less on vacations. Now, what's more important to me, going on an extra vacation or going to Starbucks once a day? And that's a personal decision for everybody. And you go through all your spending like this and you prioritize. And this is the punchline. Money buys the most when it buys things you value. If you're spending $1,500 on Chipotle and it, and it's really, you're just doing it because that's the easiest thing to do and you're really not enjoying it. That $1,500 does not really buy you that much. When you spend $1,500 on Starbucks or vacation, and that's something that's something very meaningful to you, then the $1,500 has a much greater buying power. What my wife and I did when we got married, you know, and I was making a lot less money then, we created a budget for everything. So we figured out how much you want to spend for clothes, how much you want to spend for food, and we tried to live within, the, within this budget. And that's what I want my kids to do as well. But today, I approach it slightly differently. I basically have four or five categories where I have very loose budgets. And, and then in other categories where I have a very strict on my spending. So my loose budgets are when I spend money on education. We have almost unlimited budget. Unlimited amount of money on books. Same thing applies for music teachers, tutors, this kind of stuff. Then uh, when it comes to health, same thing. We basically have kind of unlimited budgets. We would do anything to stay healthy. That also, when we buy food, we buy we err on the side of high quality food. Now, time. I'm very protective of my time. And so a lot of times I actually spend money to buy time. I don't like to mow my lawn. So I have a guy as an example. So I have a guy mow my lawn. But also when I schedule calls and I know like Rob, like when you like when you're scheduling this podcast, you were dealing with my assistant and you had emails going back and forth. And because I could have done it too, 
but it would take in 15, 15 minutes of my time. And because I have an assistant, she can do these kind of things and buys me a few hours a week. That's a few hours I can use to spend time with my family, to write, or to focus on analyzing another stock. I have very loose spending on these categories. You may argue, well, you're a successful financial money manager. It's easy for you to do this. And that is true, except we lived in the same house that we bought 18 years ago. So I'm giving up something else. So I'm giving up bigger house. For a long, long time, For I, you know, my wife drove the same car for 13 years. I drove the same car for nine years. Because we spend more money in these categories, we give up on spending in other categories. You can always spend more money than you earn, no matter how much money you make. Just look at all these uh, broke celebrities who make tens of millions of dollars a year and file for, file for bankruptcy. So having a budget, have a, at least mental budget, the, you know, the way we have it, should help you to deal with that. You had mentioned in there the sinking funds. Yes. Right? The sink, so kind of planning for the known future. Yeah. And you mentioned a, a car, your vacation. If you're advising your kids, say, mm-hmm. okay, have a sinking fund. What would be the specifics of how you do that? Would you put it in a money market? Would you put it in an index fund? Just put it in just savings? I mean, like what? And just so that it's protected and grows and it's just a, a smart way to approach Got it. that thing. Well, I think so. The, there are a couple answers to this. Number one, it depends on the duration of when you need the money. So if you're saving for your retirement and you're going to retire 10, 15, 20 years out, I guess that, that's the ultimate sinking fund. I guess. Yeah, it? yeah, that, yeah. That, that is that that is the ultimate sinking fund. Then you would, you know, I would say invest in stocks, right? If you are saving for your next car, I would just say keep it simple. Whatever you do, keep it simple, because a lot of times we get lost in details, and then the whole thing falls and becomes very complex, and the whole thing falls apart. Like one way to do this is literally, you can have one account, one savings account. But create a spreadsheet. You have fifty thousand dollars in that account, and you allocate out of that fifty thousand dollars, fifteen thousand dollars is for a new car, ten thousand dollars for this. I think we had some point we had a different sub account, sub checking account. So they, they some some banks allow you to have as many accounts as you want. So we did that. But then at the end, we just had one 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 account, and I had a spreadsheet where I assigned you know, how much of that money belongs to which account. You had mentioned that you have what was the phrase used? Like a, a loose budget or a yeah yeah yeah. I have a very yeah I have a very loose budget. Yes. Okay, a loose budget. So my wife and I were listening to this. I think it was also on Tim Ferriss. I can't remember who said it. Is that when you're budgeting, be very attentive to what you spend, how you spend it. But when it comes to the things you truly, truly love and value, the things that bring you joy, spend freely. Yes. And we heard that, and then right after we told our kids, and this is when they could start to understand this. And when you said this, it, it popped into my head is books. Any book you ever want to buy. Let me add, unless it's like a first a, edition of War and Peace or something. That's like, that's crazy. You don't even have to ask. It's just, you both have a Kindle or you can just order any books. And it's just, that is so highly valued that you can probably never spend enough on that. And it was such a game changer. And I think you're sending, I do, this is exactly what we do. And we send our kids the right message. And the message is books are so important, 
because that's where all the that's where most of the knowledge is, right? And so we don't have a you know they want to buy a book, we don't ask them questions. In fact, we I made this whole ritual of going to Barnes and Noble with my kids. I take my daughters to to Barnes and Noble after school, and it becomes this huge experience because I got you know I buy my little one a K-pop you know and a K-cup or whatever that is, and and my older one I buy some sweet drink, and it's it becomes a kind of a, a ritual where they really enjoy going to the store and browsing through the shelves looking for books. The only thing I ask him is, if you buy a book, read it. That's that's my only requirement. You know, just don't just buy the book. Don't, don't just buy a book because you want to have a you want to look at them as decorations on on the bookshelf. Well, this is a deep philosophical question. So I wonder how you approach this and with your kids. Like, I recently had this discussion with both of my kids. So there's some books, a book that has a single idea, and then the rest of the the book is just vignettes that are. Mm-hmm. Musing on that, the one idea is like, okay, in the first 10 pages, I got this. And then, ah, oh, but I feel like I've got to finish this book. Or you start a fiction book and you're a third of the way through. It's like, you know, this is, uh, this, I'm just not feeling it. And then there's this obligation, well, I started it, I should finish it. But then, you know, you're talking about the importance of time that do I want to spend my time reading a book that I don't think is going to bring me value or joy? I think there's like these two approaches to it. One is just, okay, cut bait, you're out. Great, I got what I needed versus I'm going to finish what I start. I used to be, I'm, I'm going to finish this and I, you know, grind it out trying to finish this book. And now more of a cut bait that, all right, this I've either I'm not enjoying this or I got enough and I, I'm, I'm okay just putting this down. I don't need to complete every book. Where, where do you fall on this? A lot of books should not be books. A lot of books should be just <laughs> lone essays. Yeah. And uh, so those books, once I get the main idea out, I'm done with that. You know, because a lot of times they just, it's just what it does, it just tries to add volume to turn this kind of long essay into a book. I get the main idea out, I'm done, I move on. When I read, when I read the fiction and I read the book, and I, I recently, I'm not going to mention the author, but because I you know, but I, I, I was, I've got 20% into the book and I feel just, it's, I don't like the characters, I can't relate to it. There was, you know, so I just, I just stopped. I just moved on. So I try not to have a, I, yeah, yes, I want to be very sensitive of my time. And there are very few books out there that you want to keep coming back to and rereading them all the time. There are some books like this, like almost anything written by Nassim Taleb. Th- those books I read multiple times because they have the opposite. They're very dense and they have, they have a very high amount of ideas per page. But when you read them the first time, you don't, in fact, a lot of books you should be reading, some of those books you should be reading multiple times because two reasons. First of all, you see ideas you didn't see before. And second of all, you are different from the person who was there, who read it three years ago. And so there are a lot of books that I come back and read it multiple times. And I think there is a lot of value in them. And I think it's, it makes sense to, once you get into the book and realize it's not that kind of book, you just try to get the idea out and just move on. Some books, by the way, some books, my daughter and I just, you know, we drove to Santa Fe and the last two times we listened to The Martian and How Hail Mary by oh, Weir, right? Yeah. And those, that was a perfect, that, I mean, it's a, I don't know, 800 page book. It was a perfect book for a 10-hour trip, you know, each way to Santa Fe. Per, you know, that was a perfect book for that. 
just li- listeners, that book just got the double endorsement. <laughs> the double endorsement here. Those books, all oh, so good, so good. I actually, I want to, I want to get back to to money for a bit. Yeah, and and you were you're talking about that. You know, you and your wife got on the same page with with your budget, etc. But if you look at the the other side of that, why do you think people argue about money? I think there's different dynamics. One per like like you have different backgrounds. So some person comes from a family that there was abundance of money. Some person comes from the family that has scarcity of money. And some person is more paranoid about tomorrow and he wants to save or she wants to save. Another person is more relaxed about it. You know, so you have different levels of anxiety about money. Some people very uh, frugal with money. Other people were mindless with money. By the way, there, there's a problem at both extremes. And so what budget's supposed to do, when you create a budget, it should be a decision you come together with your spouse or, you know, or a significant other, because that's a, there are going to be a lot of compromises. Because if one person enjoys going out to restaurants all the time, and another person enjoys spending money at the clothing store, there will be compromises where one person may not go out as many times as the person wants to restaurant, and another person may not spend as much money at the clothing store if they both want to go you know, three times a year on, you know, on vacations versus two times, as an example. I want to change gears to geofencing. I will fully admit when I first saw that, I said, oh, is that a, a typo where they didn't put a space between words? It didn't look quite right. So you talk about your 8% approach yes. to dieting and, yeah. and geofencing. Now, listeners, you might be familiar with that term as the first time I had ever heard it. That's a super interesting approach. And I, I'd love to hear you elaborate yeah. on, so they, on, they, on how you do this. Yeah, the story I talked about, you know, Coke and Pepsi, that was really kind of the, the key example of that. But basically, here's what happens. The way I look at my diet is that my goal is to have a long and healthy life. So one of the ways to do this is, I mean, one of them, you know, in addition to exercising, etc., is eating well. So when I'm in Denver, and this is a, by the way, this is, I'm not here dispensing dieting advice, really, because I'm, <laughs> especially, I'm going to have a whole bunch of doctors listen to me and tell me what I'm, what an idiot I am. But the diet that works for me is that I, when I'm in Denver, I don't eat red meat. I don't eat carbs. And I don't eat desserts. I don't eat any sugar. I don't eat ice cream. No dessert. And I realize when I'm in Denver, that's a basically 92% of my life because I treat, you know, I travel, between business trips and vacations, et cetera, about one month a year. So that's about 8% of my time. So when I'm in Denver, I have a very strict diet. So when I go to a restaurant and somebody, you know, there is bread on the table, I don't need it. Because I tell myself, I'm the person who doesn't need bread. When, when I go to my mother-in-law and she, she bakes a beautiful cake, I tell her that I'm, it looks phenomenal, but I don't, need, I don't need desserts. I don't need sugar. And so that is my diet in Denver. However, when I travel outside of Denver to another city, and it's you know, 100 miles or so, I have no diet. I can eat anything I want. I did it originally for a different reason. I was traveling in Europe, and I found it to be so difficult to maintain this diet just because, like especially if you are in France, it's just very difficult to have breakfast and not have bread. It, just, it was logistically different, difficult. So, and then I realized 
actually the, one of the best part of traveling is eating different ethnic food. And then they had this insight. So when I'm in Denver, I'm going to stick to my diet. But when, I, when I'm outside of Denver, I'm going to eat anything I want. And because I do this only 8% of the time, I'm actually going to enjoy it so much more. Because to me, you know, it's I'm not used to that, you know, I'm not used to eating all this food when I'm in Denver. And I tell you this: that 8% feels so much better if I ate this food while I was at home. And there is a some domain dependency because when I come back to Denver again, I don't feel like I you know, I, I, I'm going to fall off the wagon. I'm sure there's a domain dependency in our behavior. And so I found personally that it's possible to have different diets based on location. You said something a couple of times in there that I think is just really important is when you're talking about you don't eat dessert. And so you're making this into a habit of not eating dessert by identifying yourself as a person who does not eat dessert, as opposed to having to make that decision every time it's offered and kind of get, you know, like the decision fatigue. And it's like, okay, um, I, I, I'm worn down versus, no, this is just who I am. So you use the word, keyword, and what you said, identity, identify. James Clear wrote this wonderful book, Atomic Habits. And there he talks about three levels of habits creation. You set goals, you have systems, you have identity. The setting goals, I think it's important, but it's not enough because every athlete that goes to Olympic to compete in Olympics has a goal to win a gold medal. Not everyone does, obviously. So goals give us direction, but they don't, that's all they do. Systems are basically help us to achieve those goals. Systems help us to basically turn this into a process and make it easier for us to do this. So if you want to run in the morning, you know, take your sneakers and and put it next to the door. In fact, when we go skiing, like you know, I live, because I live in Denver, we go skiing all the time. We got our skiing gear packed neatly into bags. So when we have to go skiing, we just pick up bags and be ready to go. Systems help you to you know to achieve your goals. And let me give you another example. Actually, this is, you, you you will like this example. I found I discovered a year or two ago that I am addicted to coffee, and I addicted to coffee in the sense I drink too much of it. I at some point I found that I drink like six cup of coffee a day, which is arguably too much. The first first maybe first or second cup of coffee I really want, but the last four or five I drink because mindlessly because I kind of wander into the kitchen and make a K-cup or Nestle, you know, Nescafe. And so what I did, I, I told myself for every cup of coffee, I'm going to do 30 push-ups. And so now for every cup of coffee, I do 30 push-ups. I am down to drinking two cups of coffee a day and I do 60 push-ups every, every single day. So what I did, I linked a, like arguably not so bad habit, but in the in the to a good habit. That is my system for dealing with that. So so far we dealt with goals and systems. Identity is basically it's almost like your programming that tells yourself this is who I am. And when this is who you are, that kind of person makes certain type of decisions. Now I'm a person who does not eat sugar. And 
um, I didn't say I'm a person who is trying not to eat sugar. There's a huge difference. Person who is trying not to eat sugar is a person who has to make a decision every single time when the sugar is offered to the person. Okay, like I, I have this funny story. I have this friend who is a Orthodox rabbi, and he was at my house, and 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 he was telling me how he gained like thirty pounds or something because he eats too much bread. I said, "Well, just become a person who doesn't eat bread." He's like, "How would I do this?" I said, "Well, think about this. If I offer you a little bit of bacon, would you have some?" He's like, "No, because I'm a." I eat, you know, I, I keep kosher. I don't. I would not eat bacon. So I'm like, just a little bit. He's like, no, I just, I don't eat bacon. So I'm like, just treat bread the same way you treat bacon, because of his religious beliefs. That is part of his identity. He's a person who does not eat, you know, pork. So become a person who does not eat bread. And he called me a few months later, saying he lost all this weight because of that, because it became part of his identity. So I call this a half binary decision. It's a non-decision decision because if you ate bread sometimes, then every time, that sometimes actually has a very large cost because every time you saw bread, you had to make a decision. Am I going to eat it or not? Is it that sometimes point at this, you know, this point in time or not? Now, every time you make a decision, it, that consumes your willpower fewer decisions you make, the more willpower you're going to have. So in this case, I use my identity as something that helps me to kind of, for me to deal with decision fatigue. But sometimes our identity kind of, and I'm not going to get into political stuff, but let's say like, let's say you're talking to somebody about, I don't know, like abortion or some something political, and you took a point of view initially in a kind of in a random way. And then because he took this point of view, now you feel like you have to defend it. And as you're defending it, it slowly goes into your identity. And therefore, you become a person who believes this. So you got to be very careful what becomes your identity. And you have to be very mindful about this. In general, you don't want ideas to become your identity because you want to have the flexibility to change your mind. Let's get into the world of ideas a little bit, the ideas on social media. And you dedicate a lot of your book to stoicism. I think it's like the last third of it is, yeah. is stoicism, a lot of stoic quotes in there. And something that caught my attention was the stoic view of social media. God. Listeners to show know that I am not a fan of social media. I see it as an overwhelming net negative because for the most part, I find it's not ad true value to my life. Okay, just my opinion. And of course, I am an absolute hypocrite because I do post some things to social media, you know, just to Twitter. It's usually a survey seeing what people are thinking. So listeners know that like there's a little self-loathing whenever I do that. But what do you think would the stoic approach to social media look like? What's amazing about this, you read Seneca complaining about how people are wasting their time, how their time is fragmented on doing frivolous activities. And he wrote it 2,000 years ago before iPhone and Facebook and Twitter, <laughs> etc. And you realized how people really have not changed over the last 2,000 years. The human, you know, because I guess evolution takes 
millions of years. I mean, 2,000 years, I guess, is nothing in the, in the context of a human condition. So if you think about social media, Stoics have this concept of negative visualization. And negative visualization is basically when something is bad happening to you or you perceive it to be bad, just realize that it could be so much worse. When you're stuck in traffic and you're getting upset about it, realize that you've been you could have been driving, you know, home from a doctor's appointment and, and you just received the news that you have two weeks to leave. So you realize, okay, being stuck in traffic is not such a big deal. Okay, so that's a negative visualization. Okay, so once you do this, that puts things in the proper context that life is not as bad as it, you know, as it, you know. Now, social media, especially Facebook and maybe Instagram, are positive visualization, which is which is not a good thing, actually, even though the, despite the word positive. Because what happens basically, you look on Facebook and you see you look at your friends who are smiling and they have this perfectly organized house, and the kids have this perfect haircuts and everything. And you look at your life and you look at your messy house and you realize that your life is not so good because your friends' life is so much better. So what it does is actually brings you down because this relative comparison, all it does, it tells you that you don't measure up to your friends. But what you don't realize, or even if you realize it still overpowers your common sense, your intellect, is that what you're seeing in that picture is a very distinct moment that was choreographed by your friends. When your friend was you know, fighting with his spouse, he did not post that moment on Facebook. But the problem is you see a lot of these moments when people go on vacations, etc., and that actually brings you down. There was a show that I heard of, and I think I watched maybe five minutes of it once, called Hoarders, People Who Hoard Things. And I couldn't understand why people would want to watch this kind of show, or who would want to watch? I don't know if Jerry Springer is still on, but there was a show, you know, go, go, you know, where you could see dysfunctional families. And now I understand why. That is actually negative visualization at its worst, because you look at this and you say, you know, you realize there are so many people that are screwed, more screwed up than I am, and therefore, despite all my problems, I'm okay. Like I never thought I would be, you know, singing praises to Jerry Springer, but <laughs> <laughs> that, and this is definitely a first on this podcast. That's, oh, that's right. Keep going, yeah. keep going. But but that point is very important. Seneca would look at this and basically, they would not necessarily advise you to watch more Jerry Springer or watch orders. They would also not advise you to go on Facebook. I think they would just basically Seneca was very guarded about wasting his time. And they would look at, they would probably advise you to delete Facebook app from your phone, that it becomes a, as we discussed, half binary decision. You just, it, there was no temptation because it's not in your phone. I don't have a Facebook on my phone or, or Instagram. And, and so I think that's how they would look at it. If you mindfully think about this and you find that it's a net negative in your life, delete it. If you find that you actually, you receive joy and you are, it allows you to stay in touch with your friends that you you wouldn't be able to do otherwise, then keep it. But it has to be, you know, you make it a mindful decision. It's interesting you talk about Facebook. So a lot of the listeners to this show you know, are members of a Facebook group that is just for emergency physicians. And I mean, there's probably like 20 or 30,000 people on it. And 
when I talk to clients about this, you know, a lot, a lot of them are are in this too. And in, sometimes there's stuff on there like, oh, there's a new something something to to know about. But most of the time, it ends up being complaining or frustration or just like venting, venting, venting. And it's great that there's a place to vent with people who are sympathetic. But when I ask people about this, how do you feel afterwards? After, after you go through this, you know, like maybe you put your own screed on there or, mm-hmm. and the intent going in there is to feel better for having community and, mm-hmm. you know, being able to just get it out there and people, you know, people get it, right? Because when you get out into your, your job after you do your training, that sense of community is much less. It's built into your training program because you've got that real core d'esprit and then you get out into the community or, you know, wherever you work, it's just less so you have this community on Facebook. And so, okay, in theory, that's incredible. But what I hear, and this is 99% of the responses, the the refrain is, yeah, I usually actually feel a little worse when I go on there. And And they're not looking at, look how great my job is. This is people saying, this sucks. And everyone piling on. And I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure what's happening there, or what the what the answer is, but I, it doesn't seem to be, you know, something that started as this incredible idea, but it doesn't seem to be healthy. I think you just have to be mindful with social media, and if you find it's a net negative for your life, just delete it. Vitaly, thank you so much for taking the time and your authenticity and vulnerability, and just. Laying it out there, being open to every question has been such a delight to have you on the show. Thank you. Rob, it's my pleasure. Thank you. That's it. That is it for today. You've made it to the end. Congratulations. To learn more about one-on-one coaching, to learn more about what we've got going on, sign up for our newsletter, check out old podcasts, get complete show notes, all the shabusiness. You can find that all at roborman.com. And until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.